Are you hungry for soul, funk, blues, gospel, and brass? If you are, tune in each Friday for Soul Food. From 2 to 4, I'll be serving up a mixture of soul, funk, blues, New Orleans brass, and gospel. Music to feed your soul and end your week on the right note. So join me, Sister Mango, on Fridays from 2 to 4, only on your community radio station, WERU-FM. 89.9 in Blue Hill, and we are streaming and podcasting at WERU.org. Support for Talk of the Towns comes from Fields Pond Audubon Center, a green design nature center in Holden. Fields Pond has a year-round nature store, lake access, and offers educational programs about habitat conservation for people of all ages. More information at maineaudubon.org or 989-2591. Support for Talk of the Towns also comes from Table, a farmhouse bistro, serving dinner Tuesday through Saturday starting at 5 p.m. Located at 66 Main Street in Blue Hill. More information at farmkitchentable.com. You are listening to WERU-FM. The time is 10 o'clock, and Talk of the Towns with host Ron Beard is up next. Good morning, and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities and to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be a benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Maine's publicly funded elections, made possible by our so-called clean election law, are the envy of many in the nation. What have we learned uh, since its passage in 2000, and what's ahead for clean elections in Maine? This is Ron Beard, your host of Talk of the Towns. and our program this morning, we've asked Ann Luther, the co-chair of Maine Citizens for Clean Elections, to join us. And she'll share the current status of the law and its impact on Maine's elections and the candidates and the voters. As always, your experience and insight are most welcome during this live call-in program, and we'll open up our phone call, uh, phone lines a little later uh, for your calls. But first, welcome to you, Ann. Glad that you could be with us. Thanks, Ron. It's good to be back on WERU. Right. And how many um, um, programs did you produce as part of the League of Women Voters? It was probably 20 over two election cycles. Great. And I really enjoyed doing it. Great. Well, we're glad to have you back in the studios. Thanks. Um, Tell us a little bit about your current work, and uh, then we'll kind of take you back in time to 1996 to talk about um, how this uh, Citizens Initiative um, went together. But what's your position now? Sure. I'm a co-president of an organization called Maiden Citizens for Clean Elections. That's a nonpartisan group of organization and individuals that work in the public interest on campaign finance reform, defending our Clean Election Act and pushing forward um, campaign finance reforms in Maine. Mm. So tell us a little bit about, um, you were part of the the group that uh, um, talked to people, got people active um, uh, in 1996. I wish I could take credit for that. I wasn't here then. You weren't? No, no. I'm sort of a Johnny-come-lately, but nonetheless committed. Um, But it's true, in 1996, there was a coalition of about 25 groups that worked together 
to field. Um, this is, you know, unheard of anymore today, but the 25 group, the coalition groups fielded a team of 1,100 volunteers on one election day in 1995. All volunteers, no paid sig signature gatherers, and they gathered 65,000 signatures in one day to put the Clean Election Act on the ballot the following year. So that in Bar Harbor, there's a little uh, room off to the side, and the people that have petitions, there's behind a table, and, and they were those there. folks were there. Yes. And they were statewide. Mm -hmm. And the question that they put on the ballot read like this. It said, do you want to adopt new campaign finance laws and give public funding to candidates for state office who agree to spending limits? That mm. was the question. Mm. In 1996, it was a presidential election year, huge turnout. 56% um, of voters said yes to that question. Um, over 320 people voted yes. 320,000 mm -hmm. people voted mm -hmm. yes. That's more than have elected any winning governor since mm -hmm. then. Mm -hmm. It was a huge majority of people voted yes. And so the law passed. It went through some court challenges between 1996 and 2000, and then it finally went into effect in the year 2000. And so this year, 2010, we're celebrating 10 years of clean elections. It's our 10th anniversary. The program has been more successful than even the initiators of the bill could possibly mm. have hoped for. We have 85% um, of our sitting legislature was elected using clean elections. We have 80% of legislative candidates, you know, plus or minus, use the system in any given election year. We have so many positive outcomes from it. So we've been going around the state these last couple of months reminding people how great it is that we were able to pass this law and how well it's been working the whole 10 years that we've had it. Mm. What were some of the factors that might have been behind those, that original coalition? Um, take us back in time and, and what were some of the factors then and have they changed any now? Well, I think they really have. I mean, you know, not only have the has the, the Clean Election Act allowed people to run for office that might never have run before. You know, we have Because they were afraid of, of having to raise money. Exactly. Uh -huh. You know, more women, more young people, pe yeah. people from more diverse economic backgrounds, you know, people who would never have thought of running because they thought they had to fundraise have been able to run using the Clean Election Act. So we've got, you know, a richer pool of people from which to draw for public service. We have more challengers to incumbents, so we have fewer uncontested races than we ha had before. We've had the spending in races sort of kept down, where other states around the country have seen the cost of running statewide elections go up and up and up. That has not happened in Maine because of the Clean Election Act. And the Clean Election Act actually did two very important things. Not only did it provide an optional public funding system for those who wanted into that. But it also provided contribution limits, even for those who are running privately funded campaigns. So even those who are running privately funded are running under the Clean Election Act. In that sense, um, if you're running for the legislature, the top contribution you can accept is $350. And for governor, now it's now $750. That was just increased slightly last year. But I mean, that's still a fairly modest contribution. And it makes it very difficult for anybody to become too beholden to particular special special interests. I think before the Clean Election Act, and I mean, this is not provable. We have only mm. anecdotal right. um, evidence for this. But before the Clean Election Act, I think it was quite common for industry lobbyists to pour money into the campaigns for people who were going to sit on the committee 
affecting their legislative agenda and to have influence on that committee because of the campaign money that they gave. There was a series of money and politics stories that broke in the um, up in the time leading up to the ballot initiative. And um, I, th I think we've seen a change in that. You know, we like to cite, just as an example, the fact that Maine was able to pass the law banning the carcinogenic flame retardant DECA, mm. um, which the chemical industry tried very hard to beat, and they couldn't beat it because we have a legislature that can be elected without taking money from the chemical industry. Um, it used to be people would say, I can't vote for that bill because my donors won't like it. Mm. And I mean, people may say that now, but they don't say it openly and unashamedly mm. as, they did, as they did before. So I think we have affected a very important change in the culture of the legislature, um, which was you know, the key thing that this bill that the, that the citizen initiative sought, sought to accomplish. So it seems like in, in that case, we're going back to kind of roots and early values that this was supposed to be a citizen legislator. Exactly. Legislature, and, and that people of all walks of life ought to be able to run. Exactly. And it kind of got out of hand, um, and this, this law kind of brought it back to kind of trying to provide a level playing field. Absolutely true. So how does the, the, the law actually work? If you decide um, you know, next year that you want to run as a, two years from now, mm -hmm. um, as a clean election candidate, what's the process? And does it start during the primary season or does it start during the general election? It starts during the primary season or a little bit before. If you're running for the legislature, there's a set date. You can't start collecting your qualifying contributions before a certain date. Mm -hmm. But let, we'll just take the legislature, the House races, for example. If you want to run for the House of Representatives, you have to collect, I believe, it's $65 qualifying contributions. So it's $5 only, only from individuals, not from PACs or not from corporations. A but PAC, oh, a PAC is. Political Action Committee. Okay. Yep. okay? Yep. But it has to be only from individuals and individuals that actually live in your district. Okay. And so you collect your qualifying contributions and you you qualify for the ballot as you normally would and if you do those two things then you're eligible to receive your your clean elections distribution for the primary. Mm -hmm. It's quite a small amount of money. If you survive the primary um, then you get your general election distribution. And for a House race, it's right now it's a little over $4,000. Mm -hmm. And so you start running your campaign for the general election, $4,000. If you're facing a privately funded opponent or a self-funding opponent who outspends your $4,000, you're eligible for dollar-for-dollar dollar matching up to, say, twice 4000 So that would be up to 12000 in total. Um, and then you're you're kept out at that. Mm -hmm. um, so you're you, you're on a level playing field with your opponent up to a certain point, mm -hmm. and um, then you're then you're capped out. Mm -hmm. And and how do do uh, if, if I'm a clean election candidate, how do I know what my opponent has been spending? Well, part of the law requires your opponent to report. Mm -hmm. We have disclosure. Mm -hmm. We have particular reporting that allows for that requires people facing a clean election candidate to report their expenditures. So just exactly for the purpose mm -hmm. of providing those matching funds, you know, as well as for the other good things that disclosure provides in terms of voter information about who's who's giving and spending what. But um, and, and the, the disclosures are required also for people making independent expenditures in clean election races. So, you know, it's not only if you're outspent by your opponent, but if a third party spends on behalf of your opponent, 
um, that figures into your matching fund calculation as well. And that's getting fuzzy these days, isn't it? Is it are you is a campaign that's spending for the opponent or just against um, the the person? Exactly, it counts either way. Okay. It counts either okay. way. Yeah. And and the matching fund calculations have really worked very well. Mm-hmm. We have had very robust spending not only by privately funded candidates but also by independent spenders. Um, very robust spending. A very robust. Um, atmosphere of free and political speech, a wide open public discourse on the issues in these races. It's actually worked extremely well. Mm-hmm. And um, and so a lot of people choose the public funding system, particularly because the matching fund system works very well. You know, we're a very frugal state. You know, we could have worked the law so that House candidates got $12,000 right off the tick. But we happen to know that, you know, two-thirds of those candidates are never going to need that much money. You only need it if you're in a competitive race. So we're trying to give the least amount of money Mm. to as many candidates as we can get away with and give the most amount of money only to those that really need it. And it's, as I say, it's worked very well. In the Senate races, you know, you have to get more qualifying contributions. And if you're running for governor, you have to get way more Mm -hmm. qualifying contributions. Mm -hmm. But the principle is still pretty much the same. That's the way it works. And uh, for the governor's races, how do you happen to know the kind of the track record? How many governor's candidates have run um, with uh, public public funding? I'm I'm thinking back in the in the very first gubernatorial election, 2002. I think there might have been one in the primary that did not survive the primary, and then a Green Party candidate did run in the general election. In 2006. There were three candidates in the general election, and there was one additional one, a fourth, that um, got knocked out in the primary. And then this year we had, um, I guess, three in the primary and one surviving into mm-hmm. the general. Okay. So the, the, um, the, the notion of, of using this system um, seems to have been working. Where's, where's the money come from? The, uh, for, 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 for the funding? Yeah. Well, the, the initial um, ballot question had a very responsible funding mechanism written into it. It laid out numerous streams of revenue into the Clean Election Fund, which was a dedicated, non-lapsing, interest-bearing fund. You know, the money was supposed to go in and never come out. Um, the ballot question that voters passed said $2 million a year from the general allotment plus the proceeds of all the $5 qualifying contributions, plus the $3 checkoff on your income tax reform, in, income tax form and a few other little mm-hmm. things, the interest from the fund mm-hmm. and so forth. But, you know, the, the main source of the funding is the $2 million allotment. And if that funding had been respected, if the fund had been a lockbox, if the money that went in had not been borrowed by succeeding legislatures, we would have had more than enough money to get through all the elections, including mm-hmm. um, this year's election. We would mm-hmm. have a surplus in the fund after this year. Regrettably, unused money was too big a temptation for the legislature and the governor, and there was borrowing almost immediately. Mm-hmm. And so we've had what we call just-in-time funding ever since. Mm-hmm. You know, they put back the borrowed money just 
enough to mm. get through the next election, mm-hmm. and the fund will be basically broke mm-hmm. um, after mm-hmm. this year. Well, maybe we can talk about that later in the show. Yep. I want to remind listeners they're t- tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM in Blue Hill. I'm your host, Ron Beard, and we have in our studio Ann Luther, who's the co-chair of Maine Citizens for Clean Elections. And our topic is, what have we learned about uh, clean elections over the last 10 years? Um, I think we're trying to get uh, a clean election candidate on the line. Um, but I understand before we go to her, um, um, you're awaiting the results of a pretty important uh, Supreme Court decision. It's true. What, what's that all about? Well, um, you know, we passed this fantastic law. It's working great in Maine. We just could not be happier with the outcome of our law and how um, popular it's been, not only with voters who like it because they get government of, by, and for the people, and popular with candidates who get to run better campaigns. So a very popular system. But there have been people who opposed clean elections from the get-go, and they have never given up. Mm. And so we have an attorney out in Terre Haute, Indiana, uh, James Bopp Jr., who has been filing lawsuits against campaign finance reform all over the country, and he finally came to Maine. Um, He was the fellow who was behind the lawsuit that the National Organization for Marriage filed last year challenging, you know, basically all of Maine's disclosure laws for campaign finance reform reporting. But this year in August, um, he teamed up with the Maine Heritage Policy Center, Andre Cushing and some others, and filed a direct challenge to the matching funds provision of our Clean Election Act. Um, By matching, you mean if if your candidate who was not running on clean elections outspent you, you had an opportunity to go back and get matching funds. Exactly. They, and that's where I was saying if you're, you got your 4000 and mm-hmm. you were outspent, you'd get dollar-for-dollar mm-hmm. dollar matching. Mm-hmm. So the challenge has been directly to that. The case has not been heard on the merits, but they have asked for an injunction, an emergency injunction, to stop the payment of matching funds mm-hmm. in this election, the one that's ongoing right now. 297 legislative candidates are using the Clean Election Act right now, but they want to stop payment of matching funds to those candidates. Their request for a temporary restraining order and an emergency injunction has been denied at our district court here in Maine. It was denied at the First Circuit Court in Boston. It was denied by Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer, and they have one last chance. They have shopped this appeal to Justice Anthony Kennedy. And we expect a decision from him, you know, any day now. I see you've got your computer here. I'm, you're kind of watching because that may come any time. Yes. We'll come back to that question um, in a few minutes. But uh, first, let's go to Ann Perry, who is a state representative in District 31 in Callis. Uh, welcome to Talk of the Towns, Ann. Ann, are you there? Ann Perry, are you there? Well, we'll try to get Ann Perry uh, back with us. Um, she's a clean election candidate, or has been in the past. I understand that she, um, her term limit um, is up. She's served eight years in the legislature from down in Callis, and, and uh, so she isn't running uh, currently, so we can get her perspective looking backwards. Um, what do you think some of the reasons are that people don't like public financing? What, what, what sticks in their craw when we say <laughs> public financing of candidates? What, what is it? Well, you know, I mean, it's interesting because in our, in our polling, we see that that here in Maine, at least, and this is probably true nationwide, anywhere between two-thirds and 75% of the electorate want this kind of campaign finance regulations. Very, very popular Mm. with voters. But there is a minority of folks who think that um, government spending 
on these kinds of programs is not the appropriate role for government hmm. and that um, there are somehow free speech infringements hmm. with the matching funds and they have other arguments. They just don't like it. Hmm. I mean, I've heard people say that that some people of this ilk would never forgive John McCain for mm-hmm. campaign finance reform. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, so there is an ideological streak mm-hmm. that's just against it, and they have been working diligently um, all these years, teeing up all these cases. I think they feel they have a favorable environment at the Supreme Court right now, and they want to get as many of these challenges to that court as they can mm-hmm. while they have a favorable climate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think Ann Perry is with us now. Uh, welcome to Talk of the Towns, Ann. Uh, thank you. Glad to, glad you could be with us from down in Callis. Um, you're currently the um, the uh, state representative in District 31 there in Callis, and um, I understand that you have reached your term limit, so you're no longer running. You're kind of watching the process unfold. Um, but tell us a little bit about why you ran as a clean election candidate. Well, I think first of all, it never occurred to me to run, mm. uh, and I think that was really the beginning. And um, and once asked, I really had to look at how I would do this. Uh, the fact that clean election was available uh, just left the option of running open to me uh, and the ability to uh, do it within my own community, which uh, was very important to me. What's your own background? I understand you have some background in the health field? Yes, I'm a family nurse practitioner, and I work in Calais. Uh-huh. And so without clean elections, you, you might have said, no, I don't think so. I don't like the idea of having to go out and, and raise lots of money to, to, to run for the legislature. Well, I think that's definitely a piece of it. And, and part of it is that the whole political system was very new to me. Mm, yes. Uh, and uh, having no connections, uh, really, except for uh, whoever decided to ask me to do this, and I felt that uh, with the issues that we were dealing with locally, that it might be important to have some say in the state level. Uh, I don't think, I think I probably would have supported somebody instead uh-huh. of running. Yeah. And what was it like to go out and ask for those $5 kind of um, kind of early contributions that showed that um, you had some public support? What was it like to ask people for $5 instead of thinking about asking them for um, $1,000? Well, uh, it was just as hard, uh-huh. uh, because you're asking the average citizen to do this, mm. uh, and you're asking them to have faith that you will represent them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other thing that it does, uh, as I've done it over the uh, four terms, is it also has empo- empowered the local populace, and those who don't usually have the money to give much more, mm-hmm. uh, with the sense that they actually have some input into the process. That's great. And, and, and you had the experience of running um, uh, f- four different uh, campaigns. Now, were all of your candidates running clean election, or were they um, privately funded? Um, I think they were all clean election. Uh-huh. So... Uh- uh, except for maybe I, you know, I don't know about my first campaign. Okay, that I you don't, don't remember that. That's that's going well, back too I far. I didn't know enough. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, did people um, as they as you kind of um, said that you were running as a clean election um, candidate? Um, perhaps those who, who hadn't supported you with the five dollar contribution, but later on, what what was their some their reaction? Do you remember any of the reactions to to people finding out you were running quote unquote a clean election? Um. Actually, I, that was never an issue. Mm. So it really, people kind of just expected it. 
yeah, I, I never heard anything one way or the other. Mm-hmm. So if you were in the position of encouraging other people to think about um, running for um, state office, um, what would you tell them about clean elections? Well, for me, and uh, it, clean elections was really the ability to um, uh, get your base support from your base. Mm. Um, I had some people when it came time for re-election who were saying, you know, I want to make sure I can give you my $5 again. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it is a feeling of empowerment. Um, and, uh, you know, clean elections may not be the uh, message we're giving, but it really is a mis- message of the grassroots really having some significant participation in what mm. happens in their community. And as you look back on your eight years in the legislature, what were some of the highlights for you? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I think the highlights um, were, was the ability to really uh, represent my constituency. We had some real issues. Mm. Um, and, and I am going to say proudly, as a state representative, the first bill I ever introduced which really related to the issues that we were dealing in my area, which was around substance abuse, is the prescription monitoring program, which is now in effect and being used throughout the state. Well, congratulations. That is a, a very important issue. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks so much for being with us and, and taking time out of your day to talk about uh, Maine's clean elections law. Any, any uh, concluding thoughts or final thoughts that you'd like to share with listeners this morning? Um, I, I guess the thing that I would like to say is that Clean Elections has done, at least for our local communities, uh, given them the ability to really have to say about who runs. Mm. Uh, mm. And in a much more um, uh, initial way um, in terms of being able to have that say with that $5 donation. Mm. Great. Well, that's a great story. Uh, good luck with whatever you're going to do next, Dan. Thank you. Okay, that was Ann Perry, state representative from District 31 in Callis, and uh, she was speaking here on Talk of the Towns, um, along with my guest Ann Luther, who is the co-chair of Maine Citizens for Clean Elections. We're taking a look back over the last 10 years and um, seeing what the state of Maine has learned with its clean elections law, the law that says that um, you can get um, your average citizen to give you $5 in the in the process, and then if you qualify, then um, you're going to get some public money, and, and that kind of has, as Ann has explained, has kept the, the lid on uh, campaign uh, um, funding, or, or spending, rather, in Maine. Um, Ann, bring us up to speed. What's, it, what's the, the climate look like out there now? Um, it seems like things are changing very fast. Well, I mean, certainly a lot is hanging in the balance this election mm-hmm. season, and I certainly encourage everybody listening to you know look at their candidates, um, study their positions, get out and vote on November 2nd. So it's hard to predict what the next legislative session will hold for us. Um, every year there are um, 151 legislators um, elected to the House of Representatives and 35 elected to the Senate, all of whom are campaign finance reform experts because they've just come off the campaign trail and they have their own experience and they have their own proposals for how our campaign finance laws ought to change. So we're dealing with, a, you know, every a legislative session. Mm-hmm. We're dealing with a lot of new proposals. Um, we're definitely going to have a fight for the funding. This mm-hmm. year, the fund is broke, as it is after every election cycle, and we're in a tough economic climate. So finding the money to refund the program for 2012 is certainly going to be a challenge. 
we like to argue that, and uh, you know, I hope this is persuasive, that we have here one of the best public policy programs that you could possibly have, and we're getting all of this value for $2 per voter per year. Mm. It's a very modest amount of money. And especially when economic times are tough is when you don't want to turn the reins of government back over to wealthy corporate union or even wealthy individual special Mm. interests. We have a program here that puts all voters on a level playing field and gives everybody a say in how our government operates. You know, talk about taking back the power to the people. I mean, this is a program that really, really does it. And so when economic times are tough, we feel like this should be the top priority. Mm. And um, we hope we'll be able to preserve the funding. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like you've got um, uh, voter support. Mm-hmm. Now we need to translate that voter support. <laughs> into I guess legislative into, support, right, yeah. Right. But, I mean, it's interesting because use of the program, I, I said earlier, um, you know, about 80% of the current candidates are using the program. 80% of it, um, of all the candidates are using it. But usage actually crosses party lines. Mm -hmm. So just for example, this year, I think we have 82% of House Democrats running with public funding, but we have 94% of Senate Republicans Mm. running with public funding. So a lot of legislators um, Mm. have used the program and have a reason to understand why you can run a better campaign mm. um, if, you're, if you're using public money. Well, as Ann Perry said, those voters in the Calis area felt very empowered because right. they were helping select the candidates. They weren't necessarily relying on some, some foreign, <laughs> not right. foreign, but a distant um, uh, process. Yep. Great. Well, w- now we have uh, John Brodigan on the line. And John, um, you've had a long history working on uh, Maine's clean elections law. Um, welcome to Talk of the Towns. Thank you, Ron. Good to be here. John, you've got a, um, a mixed background. You've served in the legislature, but um, you've also been um, working on these issues. Tell us a little bit about how you first got involved and in, in your kind of um, your career path around these issues. Yeah, I was uh, involved in the campaign back in 1996 as a you know more or less a volunteer, just helping out with the campaign. And the day after the law was enacted by voters and popular vote. Uh, a lawsuit was filed against the law, and I uh, became you know, part of the legal team and then eventually the director of the legal team for Maine Citizens for Clean Elections in the first round of litigation over the law. And what was that about? What, why did somebody um, challenge it the day after it had been passed? Well, <clears throat> I think there's always been this. In fact, it's the same group we're in court with today, uh, folks who don't like any kind of restrictions on campaign mm. uh, finances. Um, and, you know, really prefer to see what was the status quo before them, where it was expensive to run campaigns, and, uh, you know, those with uh, access to a lot of money had a huge say in how campaigns were run and the outcomes of campaigns. So we, they came up with some legal arguments around the First Amendment, both on uh, contribution limits and on uh, public financing. They, they basically argued that this was a... Um, end-around argument uh, against uh, uh, spending limits applicable to candidates. They said that the public funding option is really just spending limits um, that are that are uh, voluntary only in in name, but they're actually mandatory. And the Supreme Court had ruled that spending limits were not constitutional. So that was sort of the uh, main argument the first time around. But they didn't they weren't successful. No, we argued that case. We litigated it up through the first First Circuit Court of Appeals in Boston, and we won on 
on all those arguments. Uh, the First Circuit said that these public funding options actually enhance speech, enhance First Amendment values, and uh, the particular provision, the matching fund provision, was also upheld back then. Mm-hmm. And, and tell us about the, uh, and out, kind of outline the current case that's before the Supreme Court, but tell us um, a little bit more about that uh, that case. Well, we're back in court now. Uh, lawsuit was filed in early August uh, to uh, block the clean elections system for this election cycle that we're currently in now. And they've made some of the same arguments against the contribution limits uh, applicable to gubernatorial candidates also. But with respect to the clean election system, um, they're challenging, once again, the matching fund provision, which allows uh, additional funding to participating candidates who are getting you know, outspent in their campaigns uh, to allow them to continue to get their message out um, so that they're not sort of sitting ducks against any kind of spending by their opposition. But it seems like um, that's kind of changing the the game in the uh, the, the rules in the middle of the game. A, a clean election person is has signed up. They're they're rolling merrily along. Their candidate has outspent them, and and the law you know allows them to 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 go forward. Wouldn't that be preventing someone's free speech if if they were prevented from getting these matching funds? Well, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, the total amount of speech that will be available to the citizens and voters in these final weeks of the campaign would be uh, more if these matching funds uh, continue to be available, um, squelching the speech of a, of a selected group of candidates by cutting off their matching funds uh, sort of on an emergency basis at the 11th hour in the campaign. We feel like that would be an unprecedented judicial intervention in a, uh, in a state campaign, and we're certainly hopeful that the, the, court, uh, the Supreme Court will continue to see it that way. We've, that's the reaction we've gotten from uh, the district court, from the Court of Appeals, and from one justice on the Supreme Court already, and we're hopeful that um, in these last few days that we will get the same result from from the full Supreme Court. Great. Um, both for, for you and Anne, um, besides this challenge, there certainly changes in terms of, of how um, money is influencing elections. And there was another Supreme Court decision um, regarding uh, money not spent on a, a particular candidate, but on on uh, kind of campaigns to, to get messages out. Tell us a little bit more about that. I'm, I'm referring to the 501c4 decision. John, can you start us off with that? And well, the Citizens United uh, case is the one that most people have on their mind, and this is the one that equates um, corporation spending to, you know, the spending of actual human beings, saying that uh, for purposes of the First Amendment, corporations are, you know, no different from a flesh-and-blood human being in terms of their right to participate and to engage in what they call speech. Um, and this is something that, you know, sort of was very uh, disappointing to folks who um, really took a different view of the First Amendment, thought that it really was about um, the, the kind of ideas and concepts that real human beings um, uh, articulate and advocate for when they speak or when they express themselves. So this has been something that um, is fla- given a flavor of where the Supreme Court is going on some of these campaign finance issues. What's been the, the, the result, either you or Ann, um, to, um, to that, that decision um, in, in terms of where money is flowing and how it's flowing and, and how do we know who's spending that money? Well, I think that's part of the problem is that we, we have not only the permission for corporate spending in candidate races, which we never had before, but we've also had um, 
the new and innovative use of 501c4 nonprofit corporations as a vehicle for this corporate spending so that corporate money is flowing through these 501c4s completely undisclosed. And so we have all of this corporate money playing in candidate races, and we have no idea, you know, who is doing the spending. So they can come out with a campaign using this vehicle or or an ad in a newspaper or on television that attacks a particular position. Can they also do it to support a particular position, or is it mostly attack? Well, it's not, and it's not only positions, it's candidates. Uh-huh. I mean, they can use this money to elect or defeat candidates and to elect or defeat, you know, a majority in Congress who are favorable to their views. And, you know, we don't really know what their vested interests are, how they intend to make money off the legislation that passes after their candidates are elected. I mean, it's all um, and in some jurisdictions, it is absolutely, literally, totally, completely swapping the airwaves. Mm-hmm. One of the other things we're seeing nationally is that uh, uh, a lot of uh, money that previously had been spent through political party organizations is now uh, no longer going through those party organizations. And, you know, I know that there's uh, certainly a lot of concern with huge uh, war chests for the political parties on both sides, but at least there's a great deal of transparency around that approach. And now we're seeing actually money available to the political parties themselves uh, diminishing and a lot of it just becoming completely um, uh, veiled in secrecy, so to speak, with with respect to these 501c4s. Mm. What's the what's the long-term solution to this this dilemma? Um, is there uh, legislation? Is it um, further uh, court challenges? How do we how do we get a hold of this particular dilemma, John? Well, I think there is a, a legislative solution to um, the disclosure issue, and and Congress needs to step up and, and enact it. And, and in the meantime, we will, you know, those of us who are in the legal team for the long run uh, will continue to fight to um, to get a little bit more of a rational approach toward this whole concept of, of corporate speech. Um, there's talk of a constitutional amendment, and the public is, is strongly supportive of a solution uh, that would that would reverse the, the Citizens United uh, decision and restore you know, the First Amendment to being a value about human speech rather than corporate speech. Mm. John, what got you um, turned on to all this in in the beginning? Why did you get involved? Well, I'm very interested in the in the democratic process and in in how politics has worked in American history. Uh, I come out of a history and law background, and I think that you know our whole democratic uh, enterprise in this country is based on one person, one vote, and the the wisdom of that goes all the way back to the founders and before. And I think if we're going to preserve that, we really have to um, continue to fight this fight to make sure that our election process uh, reflects that, that fundamental value, one person, one vote, and doesn't get completely overwhelmed by the influence of money and what it can do to distort that process. You ran as a clean election candidate, I understand, for the legislature? Yes, I did. I ran twice as a clean election candidate. And, uh, you know, like Ann Perry, I, I never... Uh, certainly never had anybody uh, raise questions about it. I, I had a lot of support from the, from my constituents. They they were very glad to know that, that you know I was only representing them, and uh, there would be no appearance or question about maybe beholden to the lobbyists that are always you know always there in Augusta. 
Mm-hmm. And what would you say to, to someone listening who might um, think about uh, running uh, in the future? What would you say to them about uh, Maine's clean election law? It's very workable. It's successful. Um, it frees you to do, you know, to follow your passion about why you want to get involved in public service, to do the right thing for your constituents. Um, it, it's uh, uh, something that the public supports and, in fact, wants people to use. Um, I would I would strongly encourage people to use it. Great. Well, good luck, and I know you're you're probably watching your computer as Ann watches hers to find out what the Supreme Court will do. What what um, do you have a a, a, a strategy either way um, going forward? What happens if the Supreme Court supports this challenge? Well, this is uh, although it would uh, throw a wrench into this election cycle, it would be only a temporary sort of a a battlefield victory in a long, long campaign. Mm. And we will continue to fight. We'll continue to develop the record that shows why it's important to have a system like this. Um, and we'll continue to develop the legal arguments why the constitutionality of this is uh, should be um, accepted by all the courts across the country. So we'll, we'll keep up the fight. Great. Thanks so much for being with us on Talk of the Times, John. Thanks, Ron. John Brodigan who is legal counsel, um, part of the team working with Maine Citizens for Clean Elections. Well, now it's your turn. We'd like you to, to hear from you, um, to your thoughts and views about um, Maine's clean elections law and its effect on both the campaigns and you as voters. Give us a call at one 626 9378 or locally at 469-0500. We're here on Talk of the Towns, here on WERU Community Radio, 89.9 FM in Blue Hill, and streaming and podcasting around the world at WERU.org. Our guest in the studio is Ann Luther, who is co-chair of Maine Citizens for Clean Elections. Um, If you have a question or comment, um, give us a call, and uh, we'll um, get back to you. Who's on the line now, Ann? I think Hannah Pingree is joining us. Great, great. Hannah. How are you guys? It's great to hear you. (laughs) Great to hear you, Hannah. Um, You've run as a clean elections candidate. Um, uh, Tell us about your experience. Sure. Well, I I will say I have um, run... Four elections in a row. I'm, I'm not allowed to run this year because of term limits, but I've run as a clean elections candidate. Um, and I've also <clears throat> spent a fair amount of time helping uh, my mom and other candidates run who don't have a clean election system. So I've seen both sides. Mm. I've seen uh, what a huge amount of time it takes for um, federal candidates to run for office when they have to go out and spend their time fundraising. And I've also seen um, across the state in my own races and in a lot of other House races where um, candidates don't have to raise money. Uh, they collect qualifying contributions. Um, you have to collect $65 checks, which means you have to go out and meet your neighbors, tell them you're running, why you're running. Um, and then you get to spend your whole campaign knocking on doors and talking to people and not raising money. Um, you can, you know, obviously you don't have to go to people who have a lot of money. You, you go to those people who live in your district and you can hear from all kinds of people. Um, you know, I've also had the statewide perspective of seeing how many great people, whether it's young people, single moms, you know, people who don't have the resources to run are able to run um, because of clean elections. They don't need uh, friends with money to run. So, um, you know, I, I think it's an amazing system. It's been um, positive for me, but it's been really, you know, even more positive to see the kind of people we're able to elect um, because of clean elections. And do you, do you get a sense of, of the whole in terms of the legislature? Is the, is the legislative and the, and the policymaking process different um, uh, in Maine because of the clean election process? Well, I've been lucky enough um, to serve uh, all eight years where we've had a clean election legislature. I mean, we have 
um, depending on the election, between 75 and 85 percent of people running uh, run as clean election candidates, and it's totally bipartisan. I mean, just as many uh, Republicans run clean as Democrats, so it's not about one party or the other. Um, and I can say I've worked on countless issues where, you know, I haven't seen the alternative, but I know that a state like Maine, I mean, we were able to pass, you know, an issue like the chemical policy we reformed, trying to take toxic chemicals out of children's products. Um, you know, we had an army of lobbyists from in-state and out-of-state um, who came to Maine, spent money, bought TV ads, tried to lobby the legislature and say, you know, you can't, you can't change the chemical system um, in this state. And legislators, you know, they made their decision based on facts, not based on campaign contributions. Um, this same kind of legislation in many other states that, have, um, that don't have clean elections and also at the federal level um, has not been able to pass. And, and that's a, I mean, a direct example of a bill I've worked on. But, you know, there's countless issues from um, budget to tax policy to um, consumer protection bills to, you know, trying to fight insurance industry practices when it comes to health insurance where Maine has been able to be successful, um, unlike many other states. Um, and there's probably a couple of reasons for that, but I, I think clean elections play a really um, major role because, you know, people uh, are not indebted to lobbyists or campaign contributors. They're indebted to their constituents who they met at the door. And, you know, they've, they've heard from their constituents, and, you know, they know if they go out and meet people and listen to them, they have a good chance of being reelected. So it's not about money. It's about the actual issues, which is how it should be. Right. And and Ann tells us that um, if uh, things go as planned, uh, not as planned, but uh, the, the fund will be um, uh, depleted by the end of this cycle. What's your sense of the legislature um, keeping uh, Maine's clean election funding alive? I think, I mean, obviously we've been in difficult budget times. Um, uh, you know, the whole country, every state has been facing pretty significant budget challenges. But Every legislature I've been a part of, um, when there's been a gap in, in clean elections funding, the legislature has made sure there is enough money to make sure the system is viable uh, for the next election season. Um, sometimes the system has built up a surplus, and, and that is very vulnerable when you're trying to make decisions about health care versus education mm. versus clean elections. Um, so th that money has sometimes been used for other purposes, but there's always been enough money for the next election cycle, and I think that's something you'll see future legislators um, committed to. I mean, we obviously have a gubernatorial candidate using clean elections. We have a majority of legislators using clean elections. And, you know, I think people believe in it for, for all the reasons I've talked about, about the kind of government um, it makes. I mean, obviously, the bigger threat now to clean elections is, um, you know, a federal court process. I mean, we have clean elections right now still sitting in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. And, you know, it's possible even in the next couple of days part of our clean election system could be suspended. Um, the Arizona clean election law has been partially suspended, um, you know, due to, you know, what I would view as a, a U.S. Supreme Court that is, um, who has been working towards, uh, you know, allowing more corporate um, uh, involvement in the election process. And I, I'm, I'm really worried about uh, the future of our clean election system for that reason. Um, I have a lot of faith and confidence that the Voters of Maine support it, that the legislators of Maine support it. Um, ho I'm hopeful we'll have a governor who will support the clean election system. I mean, that could be a, an upcoming challenge. Um, but, but I think in general there's, there's, there's overwhelming support for it in the legislature. Great. Well, Hannah, um, thanks so much for all of your work on behalf of citizens in this area and the state, and uh, good luck with whatever future plans you're making. 
Well, good to talk to both of you, and, and thank you uh, for all the work that you do. It's been a real pleasure serving part of your listening area for the last eight years. Um, it's been a real honor to be a part of the process, and, and uh, I look for, I'm sure our path will cross again soon. <laughs> Great, Hannah. Thanks, Thanks so Hannah. much. Um, that was Hannah Pingree, who is termed out. Um, she's um, run and served for eight years in the Maine State Legislature, and uh, so she's not running this year exactly. because of our term limits. Um, you're tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We'd like to hear from you, one 625 9378 or 469-0500. We'll get you into our studios. We'd love to hear from you on the topic of clean elections and, and especially Maine's experience over the last 10 years. It's um, been kind of a, um, a, a decade of mm-hmm. um, experience. And uh, tell us a little bit uh, what you've heard and what you've uh, been able to communicate as you've been out talking with others in, in the state of Maine about this. Well, you know, it's a celebration. From our perspective, we've had 10 years of a very, very successful program. It's working. Um, so we we've been out talking to people, some of whom didn't live in Maine when the law passed, some of whom weren't voting you know, when the law passed, some of whom have only known politics the way it is under the clean election system. So reconnecting Maine voters with what we were able to accomplish with the law and how well it's been working, it's been uh, really a very gratifying uh, celebratory tour and culminating on November 18th with an event in in Portland. Mm. Um, if I may do a little shameless self-promotion here, <laughs> sure. um, we have a couple events coming up right here in your listener area. Um, tonight, as a matter of fact, a band called The Nerve and Friends will be playing a benefit concert at the Fisherman's Friend in Stonington starting at 7 o'clock, and we hope everybody will turn out for that. It should be a great event. Um, donations at the door benefit Maine Citizens for Clean Elections. And then tomorrow, at 2 o'clock, Real Pizza is going to show a benefit screening of um, the movie Casino Jack, which is about Jack Abramoff and um, the out-of-control money that he uh, wielded through Washington during his tenure. It's an award-winning director, made this film and made it available available to us to, sh- to show. So I hope people will come down to Real Pizza tomorrow um, again to benefit Maine Citizens for Clean Elections should be great. Mm, and that's in Bar Harbor. In Bar Harbor. Right. Thank you. We do have a call. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Well, it's a comment. This is Rufus in Orland. Uh, the image that sticks in my mind about um, politics as usual is of the congressmen who um, go down to, to, to vote in the House of Representatives. And as soon as the vote is over, they don't stick around to uh uh, listen to the debate or talk in the lobby or problem, or make deals with the other side or anything. They just go off to offices to get back to work making phone calls because they have to have millions of dollars in their campaign accounts by the beginning of the next campaign. Mm. So that image sticks in your mind as to, as to why Maine's clean election law might it's, be working. It's so much better, yes. Right. Well, thanks so much for your call this morning. Um, 1-866-625-9378 or locally 469-0500 if you'd like to speak about Maine's clean election law and what that might mean for um, Maine's voters and Maine's uh, legislative process. Uh, In the studio with us, we have Ann Luther, who is the co-chair of Maine Citizens for uh, Clean Elections. Um, What's next? Um, Well, let me comment on, I mean, that was an excellent comment and reflection from uh, from your caller. And 
I'd just like to mention that there is a federal bill similar to Maine's Clean Election Act. It's called the Fair Election Now Act Hmm. that has been working its way through the House of Representatives for a couple of years now. And thanks to the sponsorship and help of our first district congresswoman, Shelley Pingree, and Mike Mishu is also on board with this bill, it actually did get a committee vote um, right before the break. Mm. And so it's come out of committee. There is a lot of hope that it might actually get a floor vote in the House during the lame duck session. And we're all watching that bill with great hope and expectation because it could have um, the positive benefit on our federal elections that the Clean Election Act has had here in Maine. So that's the Fair Election Now Act. And if your listeners are interested, they should check it out online. Mm. We heard a lot about campaign reform mm-hmm. um, in the last cycle, uh, federal cycle, um, but it feels like all that's sifted away. I mean, it's, it's sand kind of drifting through the, the river, and we're not seeing much. Um, would this lot really ch- change the, the course of, of, of that? Well, I mean, we still have the Citizens United problem that mm-hmm. John talked about, mm-hmm. and that certainly is you know a big tidal wave of money. But mm-hmm. in terms of breaking the link between people running for Congress and fundraising for their own campaign mm-hmm. um, and being able to run for office without special interest money, the Fair Elections Now Act would be a great place to start. Mm. I mean, you know, I, I talk about campaign finance reform. It's not for the short-winded. It's a long-haul <laughs> fight. Um, you know, you push forward a little bit mm-hmm. and you get a little pushback. You pu- push forward a little more and you get a little pushback. So, I mean, despite the fact that we have a uh, uh, Clean Election Act here that's the envy of the nation. We are not without our campaign finance reform challenges, too. We still have sort of a Wild West in giving in the political action committee realm where we are one of the only states. We are the only state in New England and one of the very few in the nation who has absolutely no limits on what you can give to a political action committee. Corporations, unions, it could be a million dollars. It doesn't matter. So there's certainly room for improvement um, there, too, and the same is true on on the federal level. You have to push forward a little, and mm. you're going to get pushback, but you have to keep going. You know, the fact that we will probably never get money out of politics does not mean that we should give up the fight. We just have to continue to try to push forward with the next reform. And I think the Fair Elections Now Act would be an excellent step in that direction. So that would do some of the same things that Maine's clean election law does? It, it would work a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. It's um, not... This, the same, you qualify, you get a lump sum distribution. Mm-hmm. It's more of a small donor match. Mm-hmm. So you would um, collect donations up to $100 in your district, and the collections in your district would be matched. I believe it's it's either four or five to one, where you can collect donations up to $100 elsewhere, but they're not matched. Mm-hmm. So donations mm-hmm. from your constituents are worth five times as much right. as, as other people's donations. And if you opt into the program, you're limited to donations of $100 or less. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, is a big difference from the $2,300 that you could you could take today. Right. And that would, um, as Ann Perry said from Callis, that would kind of um, put people back into the exactly. process exactly right. <laughs> of, of electing congresspeople. Yep. Right. 
Great. Um, the the next you've mentioned a couple events. Anything else be, uh, before you get to the major statewide celebration on November 18th? Well, my colleague Allison Smith and I and some of our coalition partners are out um, speaking to civic groups, um, Lions clubs, Kiwanis clubs, uh, Rotary clubs, um, Co- Chamber of Commerce groups, other civic groups, Granges. Um, we're doing you know five or six of these engagements every week. If you would like us to come to your town, believe me, we will be there. <laughs> um, you can check out our website for a number to call to arrange for a speaking engagement um, in a venue near you. We'd love to do that. So we have a, you know, a, a heavy schedule of outreach going between now and November 18th, culminating in our big event in Portland. And they should go to just um, look on their web browser for Maine Citizens for Clean Elections. It's uh, www.maincleanelections.org. Mm. And as you as you think about this, um, and you're thinking about someone who's um, maybe 18, and they're thinking about um, their life, what would you tell them about Maine's Clean Elections? I just think it's the best that the nation has to offer. It's going to give you, at 18, a chance to run whenever you're ready. Um, you keep an eye on how this works in your neighborhood. Support your candidate when they're coming around for their $5 and get ready to run your own race. Great. And I suppose we shouldn't um, let this opportunity go by without saying, please vote on oh, November, November 2nd. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, Ron. Well, thanks so much for being with us. We've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balnane House Highland Music recording. Thanks again to our guests this morning, Ann Luther, the co-chair of Maine Citizens for Clean Elections, Ann Perry, a state representative from Callis, joined us, as well as Hannah Pingree uh, from this general area. Um, she's termed out in the legislature. And John Brodigan who is legal counsel for Maine Citizens for Clean Elections. Thanks to those of you who listened and called in with your questions and experience. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Support for Talk the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation, partnering with donors and nonprofits statewide to strengthen Maine communities through grants and scholarships on the web at maincf.org.